This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Mike Slater. Jay Severin. We could pull out the scoring sheet on Friday and say, okay, there was this, there was this, there was this, there was this. And who did best at those things? That's pre-analysis. That's how you learn and know and practice the business of politics. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. I gave a speech the other day. And uh, I said that in the beginning of the speech. And someone came up afterwards and said, thank you for saying that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what we do. And the reason I say it is because in college, uh, I couldn't say it. I, I said it a few times, and it didn't go over well <laughs> with the people I, I said it around. So I said, uh, well, if I ever do this radio thing, I'm going to say it every top of the hour. So there's the background. Um, what a week, right? Summers are supposed to be slow with the news and it has not been big picture analysis of the debate and then we're going to uh, dive uh, pretty deep into some of the uh, details here uh, big picture though, I'm fired up you wouldn't I, I'm excited about these next 17 months or whatever it is I have full confidence that at the end of this a solid constitutional conservative will rise to the top and there will be a great VP choice out of this batch two. I have, a, I have full confidence in that, and that is entirely a result of the hard work that you've put in the last you know, seven plus years or whatever it's been. The candidates who were up there on Thursday night, most of them, are the result of the Tea Party movement and the effect that that's had on the Republican Party. So if you enjoyed the debate on, on Thursday... Or at least parts of it, or the the candidates, or whatever. Um, congratulations, that's you. You did that. That that w- would not look like that if uh, if you haven't been putting the work in the last seven years. Now, let's talk Donald Trump. <laughs> At the risk, I, we talked Donald Trump on my local show yesterday, and I and I started off saying, uh, "Listen, it's Friday night." And my wife and I have some plans, and, and I'm really hesitant to talk about Donald Trump because I don't want to get hundreds of emails and respond to I, I got, but let's chat about it anyway. Um, this was the Frank Lutz uh, focus group after the debate. There were about 25 people in the room, and he said, well, who was positive with Trump before the debate? And most everyone raised their hand. And then who's positive with Trump now? Two people raised their hand. And he said, who was negative before? Hey, a couple people here. Who's negative now? And almost everyone. I just want to play one part of, uh, of that Luntz focus group. And then I want to talk about uh, why. Why that's, why the change. Clip one. You know, it happened. I liked him when I came in here because he wasn't a politician. But right now, he skirted around questions 
better than a lifelong uh, politician ever had. <laughs> Anthony, what was your reaction to Trump? I was really expecting him to do a lot better, but he just crashed and burned. He was mean. He was angry. He had no specifics. He was bombastic. Eli, you walked in your Trump supporter. What happened? You know, he just let me down. I, I just expected him to rise to the occasion and look presidential. He didn't. All right. I want to talk about the opening moment. Very first question of the debate. And it was who here will not commit to supporting the eventual nominee, uh, meaning who will potentially run as a third party. And Donald Trump was the only guy who raised his hand. So he's leaving the option open to run as a third party candidate, which would 100% guarantee a president, Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump has a lot of ego. And a new newsflash, right? Newsflash, Donald Trump has ego. And for what he does for a living, it's great. He, he leverages it well. But that ego could very well be the death of the Republican Party in 2016. There's a very high likelihood that he will be unwilling to, to give a concession speech for the good of the conservative movement. If he loses the nomination, he will not go down without a fight because his ego will not allow him to give a speech where he says he quits and where he supports someone else. I don't see it. I don't see that happening. Do you truly imagine Donald Trump, let's say he gets third place at the end of the day. Do you really imagine him giving a concession speech? I, I don't. Or at least I'm, I'm worried he won't. And this is what I liken it to. Do you remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Remember Elsa? She's the, uh, the blonde Nazi. And she finally gets the Holy Grail in her hands. And then she starts to walk backward, which you never do when you're inside of a temple. You never walk backwards. And she starts to walk backwards, and, and she steps on something, and the entire ground starts to, to shake and crumble and, and splits in two. And she falls over, and the Grail falls in the cracks, and, and it's resting on a ledge. So she falls over, and she's hanging on for dear life on the edge, and Indiana Jones slides in and grabs her hands. Okay? But Elsa then realizes that the Holy Grail is on that ledge. And it's, it's just an arm's length away. So she lets go of Indiana Jones with one of her arms, and, and, sh and she tries to reach the Holy Grail. And Indiana Jones is saying, Elsa, <laughs> grab on! I can't hang on anymore. Grab on. And she's like, no, I can reach it. I can reach it. She keeps stretching and reaching. And finally, she slips out of Indiana Jones's grip and, and she falls to her death. So the metaphor here is, is clear, right? She's so obsessed with this thing, the Holy Grail. She's so obsessed with it. She thought her life would be, be perfect if she had it. But in the end, because of her obsession, she had neither. Neither that thing or her life. But then, and here's the best part. The earth shakes again, and Indiana Jones is now the one hanging from the ledge for dear life, and his dad comes in and grabs his hands. Remember the scene? And Indiana Jones, he's like, oh, thanks. And then he looks around, and he's like, oh, the Holy Grail's within my reach. It's the same thing that Elsa was doing five seconds earlier. And he starts to reach for it. 
Same thing. And his dad goes, Indiana, hang on. Come on, what are you doing? Junior, give me your other hand. Do you have it? Oh, that's beautiful. Good play. I almost reached your dad. Indiana. Indiana. Oh, look at look at these gentlemen here. Look at the first class professional group right here. It's Indiana. Let it go. And Indiana Jones grabs on, and then he gets pulled up, and and they live. Love that. And the way he says it too, he's like Indiana. Let it go. So think of the Holy Grail for Donald Trump being the presidency, and. Choosing to live, like to grab back on, is representative of giving up on that quest. And that would be the equivalent of, of Donald Trump being like, oh, fine, all right. I'm not, I'm not going to get the presidency. I'm going to grab back on. I'm going to get pulled back up. And I'm going to help the conservatives win this election as opposed to guarantee their loss. Now, I hope I'm wrong, but whatever it is, you know, 14 months or however, whenever we pick the nominee, Trump's going to be hanging on over that ledge. And he's going to be reaching and he's going to be stretching and he's going to be just out of the reach of the nomination. And we're going to be saying, Grab on! Like, what are you doing? Let it go. Trump, let it go. You're not going to be able to reach it. You're not going to be the nominee. You gave a valiant effort. We're glad you were here, but let it go. And he's going to keep reaching and reaching and reaching, and then he's going to slip into the abyss that is running as a third party, which will guarantee Hillary Clinton wins. We haven't talked about Donald Trump since the day he um, started running. And I said then that there there were three reasons why I'm glad Donald Trump is running, and I stand by all three of those. If for no other reason, I'm glad he's running because the excitement of him running brought in a record number of people watching the debate who could see the other wonderful candidates who are up on stage. I'm happy he's running, but there's going to be a time when Donald Trump is going to have to let it go for the sake of the conservative movement. And I know this conversation is you know 14 months too early because a lot can happen in the next year. But do you see him doing that? Do you see him letting go? That's a concern. But again, a lot can happen in the next year. 1-800-1-888-900-3393. Now, I do want to come back and talk about the person who absolutely won Thursday. And you're thinking, well, hold on. What do you mean won Thursday? Yeah, this is the person who won Thursday. I'll explain next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Again, I know that conversation was a couple months before it really needs to happen, talking about Trump to a third party, but um, I just keep it in the back of your mind, and when it pops up, you can remember Elsa the Nazi. 
So I thought the biggest news of Thursday was Carly Fiorina. There is no doubt about it that Carly Fiorina is going to go all the way to the end. She is rock solid. And she will only get better and better as the election marches on. She is she's fantastic. She is the antidote to Hillary Clinton. Without a doubt. And not just because she's a woman, but because she is clear and concise and unflappable, which means she comes across as someone who's ready to get stuff done. As opposed to Hillary Clinton, who is just a politician who's ready to make it look like they want to get stuff done. And the difference between two of them next to each other, absolute nine days. It's beautiful. It's going to be fantastic if that day ever comes. So I want to play this exchange with Carly on Thursday. This was after her debate. She was in the earlier debate. Uh, and she was on with Chris Matthews. This clip right here. Now, it's three minutes. We're going to break it up here a little bit. It's three minutes, kind of long. But it's gold. This is absolute perfection on behalf of Carly Fiorina. And if she does this for the next year, without a doubt, VP slot. Here's part. Uh, clip two. You called Hillary Clinton a liar tonight on a number of occasions. Do you want to explain why you would use such a almost end of conversation term for your possible opponent next year? Because it's true. You know, one of the things that I think people are tired of in politics, and Republicans do it as well, is we don't use common sense language. We talk in sanitized sound bites. I don't, but most politicians do. People are tired of sanitized sound bites and bumper sticker rhetoric. They want to have a conversation about the real issues. And by any standard common sense measure, Hillary Clinton has lied about Benghazi and about her emails and about her server. How do you debate someone if it comes to that? You would have three national debates with someone you have once again just this moment called a liar. Do you just begin a debate with, I don't believe a word you say, you're a dishonest person? It seems to me, having worked in Washington all these years, you say it's just not common sense, but you really think that's a way to engage in a debate to call your opponent a liar? I'm just I'm astounded by that judgment of yours. Of yours. Well, first, first of all, first of all, I was very specific about the subjects about which I think she has lied. I didn't say she lied about everything. Okay. I want to stop here for a second. A normal politician would respond to that very differently. A normal politician, I uh, think like a Mitt Romney, would have responded, "Oh, um." Well, I, I didn't. I didn't mean. Well, I'm not. Well, what I meant was. But instead, she sticks up for herself. She's like, "No, no, no, that's not what I said." Listen, Chris. Carly's twelve steps ahead of poor Chris here. Enjoy the rest of this, and the ending of this clip is, oh. It, it, it feels so good. Here's clip three. I was very specific, very fact-based, actually. You are the one who's made a generalized comment now about her, not me. Well, once secondly, you call a person, once you say a person, excuse me, well, okay, secondly, go through your secondly list. I will debate her. Go through your list. Her. I will debate her go on the facts and the issue. Benghazi, 
emails, and server. I will debate her on the issues facing this nation. I will debate her on her positions. I will ask her, for example, how she can possibly continue to defend Planned Parenthood. I will ask her why she continues to say she's a champion of the middle class while every single proposal she has put forward makes crony capitalism worse and worse and worse, which makes income inequality worse. I would ask her why she declared victory in Iraq in 2011, why she called Bashar al-Assad a positive reformer, why she thought she could stop Putin's ambition, a man I have met, with a gimmicky red reset button. I'll ask her why she got every single foreign policy issue wrong as Secretary of State. That's how I'll debate her on the issues. Let me, let me, uh, let me fine point, put a fine point on that. Why did she lie, or how did she lie, as you put it, about Benghazi? Where was her lie? Okay, so it's very clear from all the data. It's very clear from the data. It's very clear from the emails that she, that the President of the United States, that the Secretary of State, and that the military understood that this was a purposeful terrorist attack on the anniversary of 9-11, and they understood it while it was going on. So tell me then, why would you talk about the next day from the State Department? Why would you talk about a video? Why would you explain that this is not a America. Why would you stand over the bodies of the fallen and say it again? Why not come out and say this was a purposeful terrorist attack on our embassy? Four brave Americans were killed and we are going to seek retribution. Thank you, Carly Fiorina. I see why you stood out tonight. Thank you for coming on the program tonight. There you have it. Oh, that's amazing. That's so good. That last 54 seconds. She, in as few words as possible, which is key, laid out 100% without a doubt how Hillary Clinton and the State Department and the president all lied about Benghazi. 54 seconds it took her, and Chris Matthews was left aghast. It was rock solid, as I mean, bulletproof. No, not a crack in that 54-second argument that she could, that, that Chris Matthews could find to, to pry into. Remember the, the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight? So... I mooched off of a friend to, <laughs> for that one, right? I wasn't going to pay whatever, 100 bucks to watch that. But I'd drive down the street to my buddy's house. I will pay 100 bucks right now. Right this second, I'd pay 100 bucks to watch Hillary Clinton and Carly Fiorina in a debate. $100 on the table. It would be glorious. And I think there are wonderful candidates. I think the, the, the top five, whoever you think they are, I think they're great. But none of them will be as good at debating Hillary Clinton as Carly Fiorina. And it's not even because she's a woman. That's just a, a nice bonus. And at a certain point, and I don't know when this is, but at a certain point, we need to find the right ratio of who can be the best president and who can beat Hillary Clinton. There's, there's got to be a balance because there could be a situation where uh, you know Joe Blow may be a better president, but Joe Blow can't beat Hillary Clinton. So it doesn't matter if he's the person who's best for being the president of the United States because he won't ever be the president of the United States. Hillary Clinton will be. So the, the right ratio has to be uh, figured out. Who's going to be the, the person who's going to be the best president and who can also beat Hillary Clinton? Whatever that ratio is. And I believe right now that's Carly Fiorina. And people have to consider that because I think a lot of the consideration, and there's plenty of time for all this, but a lot of the consideration is who do I like the most? Who's going to be the best president? 
And that's good. But that person will never be the president if they can't beat Hillary Clinton. And the Democrats are terrified of Carly Fiorina. When she ran for California State Senate in 2010 against Barbara Boxer, I think Barbara Boxer won 52 to 42. But Carly beat Boxer 47-42 with independence. Carly Fiorina beat Barbara Boxer by five points with California independence. Now that was five years ago. It's a new day for Fiorina now, and I am excited for the rest of her campaign. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three and Slater Radio on Twitter. Carly's uh, 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 team knows this too. She almost never mentions the other Republican candidates. She's running against Hillary Clinton, and she's been running against Hillary Clinton since the day she announced her campaign. Mike Slater, part of Generation Blaze, on the Blaze Radio Network. I think the bully pulpit is a wonderful place to start uh, healing that divide. You know, we have the purveyors of hatred who take every single incident between people of two races and try to make a race war out of it and drive wedges into people. And this does not need to be done. What we need to think about instead, you know, I was asked by an NPR reporter once, why don't I talk about race that often? I said, it's because I'm a neurosurgeon. And she thought that was a strange response. And you say... I said, you see, when I take someone to the operating room, I'm actually operating on the thing that makes them who they are. The skin doesn't make them who they are. The hair doesn't make them who they are. And it's time for us to move beyond that because, you know, our, our strength as a nation comes in our unity. We are the United States of America, not the divided states. And those who want to destroy us are trying to divide us, and we shouldn't let them do it. 888-900-3393. Mike Slater is on. That's why I'm so grateful that Ben Carson is in the race. Plenty of time to see if he can win or to hear more about his policies. But, but comments like that are essential to the conservative movement. I would really like to hear from people who don't really pay attention to politics, who maybe never watched a debate before, or didn't know anyone up on stage, what they thought of the debate. And not so much what they thought of the debate, but how they walked away thinking about the conservative movement. Because I think that – I was talking to a buddy the other day. I was like, I'm really excited about the debate. I was like, why? <laughs> I was like, I don't really know why. Actually, think about it. He, goes, he goes, all right, let me ask you this later. Why, what would make a successful debate? And I said, oh, that's a great question. What would make a successful debate is a debate that lifts up the conservative movement and presents, I don't want to say a new kind of conservatism, prevents the truth of conservatism to people who had preconceived notions of conservatism. And I put on Facebook um, last night. Let me pull it up here real quick. Um, do, 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 loading, loading. I said Donald Trump perpetuates stereotypes of conservatives. Ben Carson breaks them. And I, and I know that when people were watching the debate and never seen Ben Carson before and heard his answers, all of them, people walked away saying, whoa, this, he's a conservative? 
that's interesting. <laughs> oh, okay, I want to know more about these conservatives. That's a successful debate, and I think yesterday did that. And you know why? Here's the best part. Or here were the best parts, I should say. When a candidate told a story. That's the key. Tell stories. And there were about three or four different stories in the debate on Thursday. And that was one of them. And, and I wish the candidates would just figure this out. So, so Carson didn't say uh, to Megan Kelly's question about race. He didn't say, well, you know, Megan, I don't see people by the color of their skin. I, I judge them by the content of their character. And you're like, eh, all right, whatever. But on the impact scale, that's like a four. I'm like, okay, fine. But he didn't do that. He, he told a story. He said, well, hello. I was talking to an NPR reporter one time. And then he builds and builds and builds to the punchline. That has a 10 on the impact scale. Same point. But it's all about storytelling. Essential. I want, let's do a side-by-side here. Um, this is John Kasich's closing remark. And the question is going to be, at the end, which closing remark was more impactful? Which made a bigger impact on people listening? Now, this, uh, take it from two perspectives. Your perspective, right? Someone who's listening to the Blaze Radio right now, who's obviously pretty political, versus... Um, or in addition to someone's perspective who's never watched a debate before or doesn't know what conservatism is about or who these people are, take it from – listen to that from, from that perspective and tell me which is better. Here's John Kasich. Tonight we hear about what people want to do. I want to tell you what I've done. I was a member of the Armed Services Committee for 18 years. I spent uh, a big chunk of my life studying uh, national security issues and our role in the world. Number two – I was the chairman of the House Budget Committee and one of the chief architects the last time we balanced the budget. All right, stop. Like, I can't even just like that is who cares? (laughs) I don't don't read me your resume. Compare that to Marco Rubio's closing message. It's clip seven. Pending clip. Clip seven is pending here. I'll just tell you, Marco Rubio. There it is. I run for president because I believe that we can't just save the American dream. We can expand it to reach more people and change more lives than ever before. And that's why I'm asking for your vote. So we can make America greater than it's ever been and make of this century a new American century. Do we miss the beginning part of that? Do we have the beginning? Yeah, here we go. Let's roll back to the beginning. Sorry about that. That was the ending. Senator Marco Rubio. Thank you. You know, both of my parents were born into poor families on the island of Cuba. They came to America because it was the only place where people like them could have a chance. Here in this country, they never made it big, but the very purpose of their life was to give us the chance to do all the things they never could. My father was a bartender. And the journey from the back of that bar to this stage tonight, to me, that's the essence of the American dream. It's what makes our nation different. And I'm running for president because I want that to still be possible for the people trying to do that now. I run for president because I believe that we can't just save the American dream. We can expand it to reach so more there. people so, and change more lives. Listen to that. That's a story. My wife had tears in her eyes. I don't know if she's ever heard Marco Rubio's story before. We've heard it a million times. Uh, I don't think my wife's ever heard it. And I looked over. She had tears in her eyes. There was no one with tears in their eyes when John Kasich was talking about his, the studying he's done. Right? You know, and I don't mean to be mean to John Kasich, but I'm just highlighting here the difference between 
reading your resume and telling a story. You know, I was talking to a uh, friend of mine just yesterday morning. And I don't know how we got into it. How did we get into it? We were just talking about work. And he works a lot now. Um, and he's like, yes, yeah, I live in a, in a nice house. Nice big house. And he said, but I'll tell you, it wasn't always that way. He said, we had our first kid when I was 24. My wife was 20. We made almost no money. We lived in the tiniest apartment. We had to save for a month uh, to buy a high chair. All month. We didn't we <laughs> cut back on everything so that we could buy a high chair. And one day our car broke down. It cost 200 bucks, and we didn't think we'd be able to pay rent. But we made it. And now we appreciate everything that much more. Tell me that yesterday, yesterday morning. Kind of out of the blue. But here's the point. When you go through lean times, financially in your life, your character is shaped for the better. Right? People listening can relate to that. Right? You, you, if, when, you, when you make it through the lean times or the process of going through the lean times, your character is sharpened. You see clearer what's important and what's not. And you discover who your friends are. I'm excited about these candidates because I think these candidates are the result of lean times. They're the result of a country that has seen better days and the result of a people who, because of that, a people whose character has been sharpened, a people who now see clearer what's important and what's not, and a people who know who our friends are in D.C. and know who, who, are, who are not our friends in D.C. And that's why that stage, 17 of them, you know, maybe you take out five or whatever, right? But I'd say a majority of the people up on that stage are excellent. Excellent. And they each have their different strengths. It's like watching a superhero movie. Right? <laughs> it's like watching, uh, 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 gosh, what's the, uh, not the Fantastic Four. That, the Fantastic Four came out this weekend. I heard it got terrible reviews. What's the, uh, what's the other one? The Avengers, right? It's like watching the Avengers. They each have their strengths and they each have their weaknesses too. And that's okay. Cause they're people. But the fact that they're up there at all, and there's so many constitutional conservatives there, it's the result of lean times. And I think we're going to look back on the last eight years or longer, however long it's been, and I think we're going to look back on it as a good thing. A lean season that made us better. And I do think there's still time to turn things around one 900 Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word Mike Slater will continue in a moment on the blaze radio network This is Mike Slater. 
Outsider Crusaders. I want to go to Corey with a Y in California. Corey, where are you in California? I'm in Livermore. <laughs> Rivermore? Mm-hmm. I don't know where Rivermore is. Where's Rivermore? Oh, it's about it's about thirty miles east of San Francisco, and we oh, have you're uh, far away then. Ranches and vineyards and <clears throat> Lawrence Livermore Labs. <laughs> it sounds uh, there you go. It sounds beautiful, and it looks like you're just far enough away from San Francisco that it still could be a re- relatively reasonable place to be. Exactly. Exactly. Good. Excellent. So, What's on your mind, Miss Corey? I, well, I love what you had to say about us being in our lean season, and I was um, just thinking. Well, I've been thinking about this for a long time that. It's to our credit as as a people and people carrying on our founding principles that we have not turned into the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, Obama has done pretty much everything he can to, you know, to, to put us in that place. But you know, we've we've resisted so far. And my 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 worry about Trump. I mean, you're always going to have somebody who's got a huge ego and a huge need for stardom in the spotlight. But I see him as a kind of sketchy rebound relationship to a seven-year abusive marriage that we're currently in. Um, yep. Well, you know, you know, you know the hallmarks of, of abuse. You know, you cut cut your spouse off from the friends, from their funds, from communicating with anybody who might support them. That's pretty much what's happened on a on a grand scale. But at first, that rebound comes charging in and says, "Oh, that guy's a jerk. I'm going to punch him in the nose." and you know, anybody else who thinks you're awful, I'm going to punch them in the nose, too. And we're like, yeah, you know, finally he's going to stand up for us and saying what we think and tapping into our anger. But then what? And that's really where the, the danger lies, is, is Glenn has been saying for years, watch out for the strong man who's going to come in and say he's going to fix everything. And <laughs> you think Obama's been skinned. I mean, you know, Trump's enemies list is growing daily. And I find that unpresidential. And I think that we can find... Somebody who, yes, can say what we're thinking and who can acknowledge our anger that we've been suppressing for for seven years of being abused like this, but to do it in a way that that forwards our principles and not an emotional need to strike out. Well, goodness gracious, that's an absolute home run, uh, Corey. We only got a couple minutes here. Uh, let me ask one last question: um, Why are people so? Mm, this is gonna be this is gonna be offensive to somebody. If I say this question and you're listening and you're offended by it, I'm not talking about you. Uh, or if you are offended, maybe I am. Uh, people seem to have an irrational attachment to Donald Trump. Why? I I think it's emotional. Um, you know, he's the guy who's not afraid to say pretty much anything and everything that runs through his mind. And a lot of people can't do that. They can't do it at their jobs. They can't do it at mm. home. You know, if we if we popped off like that at, at at work, we lose that job, which we may not be able to find another one. That yeah. so a lot of people, I think, are feeling pretty suppressed. And he he does that for us. It's it's, it's like this vicarious ability to say whatever comes to our mind, which is great and, on The Apprentice. <laughs> right. right there's 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 places for that. I don't know if this is the one. Corey, absolute home run, wonderful phone call. You're the best. Thank you so much for for calling Thank in. Thank you. Um, I. Uh, I've I've been trying to articulate that uh, in my brain, Corey, and I haven't been able to. So so thank you. Um, I totally get that he speaks his mind. He's not PC. Totally get it. But that doesn't mean you have to be rude. Like to be non PC is not the same as rude, <laughs> right? I mean, 
So politically correct, political correctness is horrible. But it doesn't mean you have to be rude. So like overweight. Oh, that person's overweight. No, you have to use the politically correct term. Uh, uh, dietarily challenged. You're like, no, they're just overweight. But you don't have to be like, that person's a fat so. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you could just be a nice person and not PC. It doesn't mean you have to call people names. Because you know what? You're not doing the movement any favors. Jesus didn't go around. I hate to be all Bible thumpy here. Jesus didn't go around from town to town calling people stupid. And if you want to lead a movement, you need to model yourself after that guy, whether you're religious or not. I was talking to Arthur C. Brooks the other day, author of The Conservative Heart. And he said, if someone takes people who are angry and frustrated, which we all are or have been, and if someone takes those people and makes them more angry... Well, they're not a leader. They're a follower. They're following the anger of the people. They're not a leader. They're, by definition, a follower. And they're only making it worse. But if you take people who are angry and frustrated and can direct that and channel that into something that's productive and something that's righteous and something that's aspirational, well, now you're a leader. And the thing is... They're up there on that stage. They exist. And I'm excited for the process to find them. Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Wonderful phone call, Corey, in the last uh, segment there. Appreciate you listening. And uh, we have a new listener, Sheila, sent me a tweet. First time listening. Appreciate that, Sheila. Slater Radio on the uh, tweet machine. Um, I don't want to talk uh, the debate the whole time here. That's all right. We'll get back to uh, some different highlights and lowlights. Uh, I want to talk about uh, something that we knew exactly how this would go down. <laughs> and everyone did. Everyone, everyone knew how this would go down. And some were blinded by what they wanted to happen. But they knew. Everyone knew. Just Some refused to accept it. Do you remember the name Dan Price? Let's ring about Dan Price. How about gravity payments? Three months ago, Dan Price announced that at his credit card processing company, everyone was going to make $70,000 a year. 70 grand. Minimum salary at his company, 70 grand. No matter what you do, how you perform, that's the other part. You were going to make seventy grand, and there was this big orchestrated announcement. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, there were TV cameras in the meeting room and everything, which is just funny. Like, because they pitched it as like, "Oh, big announcement was made in the in the headquarters of uh, Gravity Payments." And, oh my gosh, look, all these cameras happen to be here by a sur- well, gosh, golly, funny, y'all show up. 
Media loved it. Media loved it because here was a compassionate millennial executive. He's 31 years old. Showing the greedy Professor Moneybag old bosses how it's done. And Harvard business professors flew in to just do a little case study. Thousands of people threw in their resumes. Third graders sent them thank you notes. I'm sure their teachers had nothing to do with that, right? And it was a big to-do. Well, now here we are three months later. So what's happened in the last three short months? Well, uh, a few customers, clients, left the company because they thought their prices were going to go up to pay for the $70,000 minimum wage. And they're right. Their prices will go up. And two of Gravity's top employees quit. Why? Because new hires who did the lowest skilled jobs got a huge pay increase from let's say 30 grand to 70 grand and the people who made 80 grand didn't get much of any raise so take Maisie McMaster she's 26 years old she joined the company when she was 21 so within 5 years she worked her way up to financial manager it's fantastic and she loved working there and she loved this idea But the more that she worked out the numbers to see if it was possible, she realized it didn't quite work out on paper. So she went to Dan Price, the CEO, and said, hey, Dan, how about instead of giving everyone $70,000, what if we gave smaller increases to everyone and and provided more opportunity to earn future raises with more experience? Great suggestion. He said, well, she says, Quote, he treated me as if I was being selfish and only thinking about myself. And that really hurt me. I was not talking about, I was talking not only about me, but about everyone in my position. Grant Moran. Oh, by the way, she quit. Grant Moran was the web developer. His salary, now this is the interesting part. And this is why I bring this up. His salary was bumped from 41000 to 50,000 and the next year it was going to go to 60 and the year after it was going to be 70. So his salary went up, right? He was one of those people that this was supposed to help and he quit. And it, it, wait, hold on. Wait, wait, What could his problem possibly be? Right? He, he was making 41 and in a couple of years he's going to be making 70. What's the deal, man? Why, why are you upset with that? He said, this is what he said. He said, quote, now the people who were just clocking in and out, were making the same as me. It shackles high performers to less motivated team members. Interesting. How about these two concerns I never thought about? Uh, Here's an employee. I was kind of uncomfortable and didn't like having my wage advertised so publicly and so blatantly. It changed perspectives and expectations of you, whether it's the amount you tip on a cup of coffee that day or family and friends now calling you for a loan. Isn't that interesting? If this guy really wanted to do it, uh, you know, the CEO really wanted to give everyone a raise, just do it. You don't have to call the cameras in and everything. Just do it. But you put your, you put your employees in a bad position. Here's another one. Uh, several employees who stayed. This is, this is the most interesting one to me. Several employees who stayed while exhilarated by the raises. This is from the New York Times say they now feel a lot of pressure. Am I doing my job well enough to deserve this? Says Stephanie Brooks, 23, 
who joined as an administrative assistant two months before the wage increase. I didn't earn it. That's amazing. So she was making, I don't know, whatever, 30 grand. And now she's going to be making 70. And she's thinking, oh man, am I, am I doing my job well enough to deserve this? I didn't earn this wage. That is such an amazingly honest perspective. People know what they're worth. And when I say worth, of course, I mean financially, right? So so according to the New York Times, several employees know their effort level. They know the importance of their labor. They understand their contribution to the team. And they know that none of that is worth $70,000 a year. And they felt uncomfortable accepting it. How interesting is that? Wouldn't you think the person who would make $30,000 a year would jump at the opportunity to do the same amount of work and make over twice as much and just take the money and run? But they didn't. They just ran. They said, I don't want to work for this company anymore. That's wild. And the CEO, when he made this announcement three months ago, he talked about a study that says increasing someone's annual income improves their emotional well-being. Well, here are some examples of increasing someone's income and their emotional well-being goes down. So I want to talk financially first for just one second, and then I want to get into more of the psychology of all this. Bottom line, financially, you can't, you, you can't ignore reality. You can for a while. But it's going to smack you in the face soon enough. And I think Mr. Price, who's a Christian and and justifies all of this based off the Bible, I think he's mistaking results with, uh, that's not quite right. He's mistaking, um, yeah, let me go with this. He's mistaking results with opportunity. So our goal as conservatives, and I'm wondering if you agree with this, Our goal should not be to hand people more money. It should be to make it easier for people to have the opportunity to make more money. And that is a world of difference, right? Sort of like the the financial manager, uh, Maisie McMaster, which is a great name, Maisie McMaster, in five years. She's 21, 21 years old. And by the time she's 26, she's now the financial manager. Like that's fantastic. And she earned her wage. She earned it because her company gave her the opportunity to prove herself. That's the key. Not just giving everyone more money. That's wild. So again, uh, let's talk a little psychology of it, and then we'll, we'll take a break in, um, in a second. So Dan Price, again, he raised the wages to seventy grand because he saw a study that said the more you make, the, the happier you are. The truth is, once you make over $10,000... The more money you make doesn't make you any happier. Think about that. Once you make over 10 grand, more money doesn't make you happier, or at least negligible amounts. Let me ask you a question. How much money would you need to make before you would feel financially satisfied. 
How much money would you need to make? So right now, think about how much money you make every year. How much money would you need to make before you are happy? Before you were content? Before you thought, you know what? If I make this much, I'm good. I don't have to worry about finances anymore. I can do the things I want and I'm going to be happy. How much more is it? So what do you make now and then what you think you, 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 what you need to be happy? How much is it? I bet that that number you gave is about 40% more than you're making now. That's what scientists have discovered. People want to make about 40% more than they're making right now. So if you're making 50 grand, you want to make 70 grand. If you're making 100 grand, you want to make 140 grand. And so on. That's it's about 40 percent more is, is what you think it is. But here's here's the thing. <laughs> Let's say you go from 50 grand to 70 grand. Then once you're at 70 grand, you're like, "Well, what I really need is is 90 grand." Right? <laughs> and then you're at 90 grand, you're like, "Well, you know what I really need is 40% more than that." Then I'm going to it's a gas. Money's a gas. Just expands. Always does. And here's the, the the other thing. Let's say you make and they scientists did this. They followed people and they said uh, they found people who made twenty five thousand dollars a year. And then they followed them until they made fifty thousand dollars. And they asked them the same questions about their happiness and life satisfaction. You would think going from twenty five thousand to fifty thousand, you think that you'd be twice as happy, twice as much money, twice as happy. Turns out people were about nine percent more happy. 9% happier, 9% more satisfied with life, which is nice, I guess. But what that says is there's clearly other sources of happiness, more important sources of happiness. Money isn't it. So this CEO, he says, oh, I'm going to give people more money so that they'll be happier. That's not the most efficient way to do that. There's other ways to make people happier. And that's what I want to talk about next. one 800 900 3393. We've all heard that money doesn't buy happiness. Well, there's your scientific proof. It doesn't. But what does? And once we find out what does buy happiness, well, that's what we got to focus the conservative movement on, right? 1-888-900-3393. We'll do it next. Mike Slater, show the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. I want to spend a couple more minutes talking about uh, money and happiness. So scientists uh, did a study where they followed lottery winners and recent paraplegics. All right, so recent. So these are people who started their life being able to walk, got in a horrible accident, and now they can't walk. And they followed their happiness over time. You would think that the lottery winners would be much happier after they won the lottery. And you would think people who lost the use of their lower extremities would be much less happy after their accident. Nope. Six months after winning the lottery, the lottery winner's happiness went back to where it was before. 
And, and this is why I say even worse, because the, those lottery winners found less pleasure in the everyday moments in life. And the paraplegics, six months after the accident, were happier than where they were before the accident. And they found more pleasure from everyday moments in life. And this is the big one. When, when the lottery winners and the paraplegics were asked about the prospects for their future happiness, the paraplegics were more hopeful than the lottery winners. And hope is one of the most important, um, I don't say metrics, attributes of, uh, of happiness and life satisfaction. And paraplegics were more hopeful than lottery winners. <laughs> right? What? And this is why, you know, the saying is money doesn't buy happiness. We think it does. But the more money you make, you're, you're not happier. And it's weird. We're actually unhappier because we think when we make more money, we should be happier. And then in the end, we're not happier. So then we get less happy because we thought we'd be way happier. <laughs> and that's all because we define success in today's society uh, on money. But that's it's not it. Um, Arthur C. Brooks, he's the author of The Conservative Heart. It's a fantastic book. Absolutely love it. We're going to talk more about it as the show goes on. He tells the story of Abd al-Rahman III, born in 891. He was a Muslim, the, the Muslim leader in Spain. He raised to, the, uh, to, to become a caliph. Right? So leader of the Muslim world. One of the richest men of all time. He had a harem of 6,000 women. So life must have been pretty good, right? All the money, all the power, all the women in the world. Here's what he wrote. He said, I have reigned above 50 years of victory and peace. I am beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call. And in this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness, which have fallen to my lot. The number of days of pure and genuine happiness, they amount to 14. Four, 14. 14 days of happiness. Richest, most powerful leader of the world at the time. One of the richest and most powerful of all time. 14 days of happiness. So... What do we do with this? Big picture. If money doesn't buy happiness, what does? Simple. Faith, family, community, meaningful work. Faith, family, community, meaningful work. Two points. First, to go back to gravity payments. And then I want to talk about the conservative movement. The gravity payments, which started this whole thing, right? The guy who said, oh, we're going to pay everyone $70,000 a year because that's going to make people happier. That's not what makes people happier. It's experiences that make people happier. It's family that makes people happier. It's time that makes people happier. So instead of giving people more money, 
maybe give more vacation time or maybe money that can be used specifically for plane tickets or something so that people can go on vacation. Visiting family, visiting friends, vacation with the wife or kids. That's what builds happiness. Faith, family, community, meaningful work, not money. So I guess my point of that, because time's short, there's many ways to make business owners, uh, for business owners to make their employees happier. But giving them money is, is not the best way to do it at all. But here's big picture. We live in this paradox in America today uh, between conservatives and progressives. Progressives, or, or let me just switch around, conservatives, people think we're all about material goods. But really, we're all about Values. We're about family, faith. We're about those things, right? Family, faith, community, meaningful work. That's who we are. But we always couch it in this materialist language about low taxes and cutting regulation and all that. Progressives, they're really about materialism, right? Spreading uh, the wealth around, giving people more money. If we give people money, then then that's going to solve all their problems. And they couch it. They cover it in this this language of moralism, this language of compassion and taking care of people and all this stuff. So people gravitate to progressivism because it's about caring and loving, but that's not what it's really about. It's really about materialism. Conservatism is really about caring and loving, but we couch it in materialism. It's backwards. And the answer is in our founding document, life, liberty, and a lot of money. No, wait, that's, that's not right. Mike Slater show spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater, Slater Crusaders. I want to talk about the Koch brothers, two most hated billionaires in American politics, which is always so strange to me that people on the left think that the Koch brothers are the only billionaires involved in politics, like George Soros doesn't exist, or um, Tom Steyer, who spent the most money in the last election than anyone, $74 million helping Democrats, but that's not... So it's funny, if you say billionaire in politics, Koch brothers, when it turns out the top 100 donors in the country in 2014, the top 100, a majority of them gave to Democrats and a majority of the money that was given was given to Democrats. $174 million to Democrats, $140 million to Republicans. So both parties have their billionaire donors, but for some reason it's all about the Koch brothers. Anyway, um, Dana Point, California, it's... I don't know how far from San Diego. I don't know. It's like an hour and a half. Sort of by LA. South of LA. Orange County. The uh, the St. Regis in Dana Point. Uh, obviously, I've never been there. But I imagine it's pretty darn nice. So the Koch brothers last weekend rented it out. I read they rented it out. Now, I don't know if that means they rented the entire thing. Which my first thought was like, well, you can't rent out the... And then I was like, well... And they are billionaires, so I guess you could buy the whole thing. So I guess you could rent it out for a week. Uh, 450 Republican donors were, were there. Minimum donation, $100,000. And five Republican candidates were there over there. 
three-day affair. So, Charles Koch gets up, talks in front of the richest people in the entire country. Really, right? Uh, Koch Industries, by the way, they're the uh, second largest private company in the country. Cargill is the largest. Uh, Cargill's in like the grain and livestock business. And if they were a public company, they'd be the ninth largest company, but they're private. And Koch Brothers, again, private, second largest private, right behind them. They're in the chemical business. So asphalt and fertilizers and minerals and natural gas and plastics and papers. And I think they dabble in livestock as well, stuff like that. So um, Charles Koch, he's around some of the richest people in the country. And maybe this would make an actually funny video now that I think about it. This would be a good video. Be, um, we can go out on the street and we can ask people. We can say, hey, you know, the Koch brothers, some billionaires, conservative billionaires, had a giant dinner. Some of the richest people in the country. What was the main policy point that he made? What do you think? What do you think was the main policy point that Charles Koch made to a bunch of rich people behind closed doors? Right, I'm guessing people would say, well, probably... He wants to lower taxes on the rich. Right? Probably wants to uh, find out new ways to buy politicians off. You know, all those kind of evil things, I'm sure. That's what people would guess. But that's not what happened at all. Charles got up and talked about the need to end crony capitalism. He said, you got, we got to end crony capitalism. And this is what he said. He said, uh, this may hurt your business in the short term. But in the long run, if we end crony capitalism, it's going to revitalize the economy. And it's going to benefit, benefit everyone in this room even more. He got up in front of these rich, fat cats and said, we got to stop bailing out Wall Street. So we got to stop bailing out the big banks. We got to stop welfare for the rich. We got to end the export-import bank. We gotta stop with the lobbying. We gotta stop with the special privileges. We gotta stop with the advantages over the little guys. Stop with the culture of dependency between DC and Wall Street. By the way, Hillary Clinton's biggest donors are Wall Street firms. Hillary Clinton is the queen of cronyism. Maybe we could talk about that later. But think about that. Think about Coke getting up there in front of these, these business owners and saying that. One of the richest men in the world getting up in front of the other richest people and says, we got to start, start by uh, eliminating welfare for the rich. He said, physician, heal thyself, which uh, I think it's in Luke. Jesus said that meaning square away your own life before you start criticizing others. So he's telling all the rich people here, physician, heal thyself, get your life together, get your business together, get out of bed with Washington, D.C. Get out of bed because you're only going to catch an STD. One of these days, it's going to come back around. I was, um, I don't know if you caught the news, uh, Nestle in Venezuela got a knock on their door, uh, one of their warehouses by some Venezuelan soldiers and said, you got to get out of here in two months. We're taking over your warehouse. We're going to turn it into public housing. And, and it's Venezuela. So what are you going to do? So Nestle, it turns out, and Jonah Goldberg talked about this in his book, Nestle, he went to go hear a speech by the CEO. The entire business model of Nestle is to get in bed with governments and NGOs and the UN, right? And all, all these governments around the world, hook up with the governments and then your business will be fine. Your business will be stable. Your business will be secure. 
Well, the CEO of Nestle has been getting in bed with too many governments, and he caught an STD. And, and the Venezuela just took over the, <laughs> the warehouse. And what are you going to do? So it happens. So that's why Charles Koch is saying, listen, stop. Get out of bed with D.C. It's not going to end well. They're going to turn on you. And why wouldn't they? Let me tell one quick Hillary Clinton story. Well, anyway, I just, just wrap up the Koch brothers. Worth remembering that story. The next time you ever hear a friend of yours or whatever say that these rich billionaires are just trying to buy the political process. Rich Republicans are just trying to buy the political process. They're not. They're fighting for free markets, or at least these guys are. They're fighting for free markets. And that's a message that everyone, even, I was going to say Berkeley progressives, but even Occupy Wall Streeters. That was the whole point, right? That's what they thought it was, or we think it was. That's what they were saying. The whole point was to, uh, obviously their point wasn't to get to free markets, but their point was to stop bailing out the banks. So here we have the Koch brothers saying that same message. This is something everyone can get behind. Stop with the cronyism. And you know, you know, you know who does a good job with this probably more than anyone? Carly Fiorina. Carly Fiorina is a great spokesperson. We talked about her earlier uh, for ending crony capitalism. And this is how she does it. She says, because she's running against Hillary Clinton. Since the day she announced her campaign, she started running against Hillary Clinton, not the other Republicans. And she says, Hillary Clinton always talks about income inequality. Well, you know what makes income inequality worse? Crony capitalism. And you know what Hillary Clinton supports? Crony capitalism. So if you are against income inequality, don't vote for her. Vote for me. Because she's only going to make it worse. And you think, well, Slater, how is she going to make it worse? Well, let me just give you an example of a little crony capitalism from Hillary Clinton. There are companies in Sweden that have been doing business and want to do more business in Iran. Now, that violates sanctions. You can't do that. You can't do business with Iran. These companies in Sweden donated money to the Clinton Foundation. So Hillary, at the State Department, gave these companies exemptions so that they could continue to do business in Iran. Think about that. So Ericsson, which is the um, uh, telecommunications company, second largest employer in Sweden, I believe, they are pitching their cell phone tracking technology to Iran, which would be used by their military and security services and stuff like that. That is direct violation to the Western sanctions against Iran. But Sweden gets a pass from the State Department. Why did they get a pass? Because they donated money to the Clinton Foundation. And a vast majority of that Clinton Foundation money goes to staff and overhead. Like, how much more crony can you get than that? That's unbelievable cronyism. Amazing. So, keep that story in the back of your mind. The uh, Koch brothers. And we need more leadership like that. Leadership that gets up and says, listen, this is the right thing to do. It's going to hurt you in the short term. But in the end, because we all do this thing, it's going to make for a more vibrant country. And we're all going to be better off in the long term. That's the type of leadership we need more of. one 888 And Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. Mike Slater Show. Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. 
Mike Slater. Uh, uh, Dave is listening. <laughs> um, sorry, he's got another tweet. Uh, Dave's listening, upset with things I said. I uh, said you'd lie about the top billionaire donors. Who else has pledged to spend nine hundred million for the twenty sixteen elections like the Cokes have? Well, I don't even, I don't even know if the Cokes have said that, but let's just say they had. I don't even. I'm, I was talking about twenty fourteen. And again, you don't think Democrats also have big donors? I'm not saying the Democrats only do. <laughs> I just be reasonable. They both do. And I sent over the information from the 2014 campaign where that uh, proves that the top 100 donors, Democrats had a majority of the donors, and a majority of the money that was given was given to Democrats. But it's a small majority. <laughs> so they both do. So it's a wash, Dave. Who are you fighting against? And then he sent over another one. He said, you know, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I said, Dave, what do you think that that means? <laughs> and he said, ask your preacher if you need a clarification. I said, no, 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 no. I know what it means. What do you think it means? Oh, he just got back. This is good. I would say people who hoard billions of dollars for themselves can't. I, I wrote back. I said, D- do you think that means rich people can't go to heaven? And he said, I would say people who hoard billions of dollars for themselves can't. Jesus encouraged people to spread the wealth. Well, Dave, I feel like you should call him. We should have a conversation about this because this is this is silly having it on Twitter and then me chatting about it. But um, Jesus didn't. I'll just be very simple here because we have other stuff to chat about. But Jesus didn't encourage other people to spread other people's wealth. See what I'm saying? Jesus didn't tell me to spread your wealth. <laughs> so that's the problem. We can have a conversation about charity, if you'd like. But uh, government-forced charity? That's very different. And you get no bonus Jesus points for advocating for the government to take people's money and spread it around. You get no Jesus points for that. No holier than thou. Like, I'm, look how great I am. I forced the government to take money from someone and give it to someone else. <laughs> Therefore, I am a wonderful, holy, righteous person. And I found that... Uh, that gate to get into heaven with my camel. Anywho, Dave, if you want to call and have a conversation, I'd love to chat. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. Uh, well, here's a good example, actually. I'll tell a quick story here. I got three minutes. New Jersey, two firefighters went to a diner for some breakfast. And the server overheard that the two men were talking about how long it's been since they've eaten anything. They were fighting a warehouse fire for 12 hours the night before. 12 straight hours, never stopped to eat. So it's been a long day. And the server overheard them talking about the fire. So at the end of the meal, she brought over a check, and the check said, your breakfast is on me today. Thank you for all that you do, for serving others and for running into places where everyone else runs away from. No matter your role, you are courageous, brave, and strong. Thank you for being bold every day. Fueled by fire, driven by courage, what an example you are. Get some rest. <laughs> now there are, are stories like that from time to time and they're all wonderful but here's the best part about this one These firefighters were so taken back they did a little research on Liz the server 
Turns out Liz's father is a quadriplegic. And last year, Liz started a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for a mobility van for her dad. And the goal was $17,000. Not much was raised in that original effort. But since the firefighters discovered it, they put it on their Facebook page. And they said, turns out, the young lady who gave us a free meal, she's really the one that could use the help. Right now, over $70,000 has been raised for this wages and her dad. And Liz said that now dad can go to all the family functions that in the past he's missed. All the weddings, all the graduations, the celebrations. Every 4th of July fireworks show, only some of the family member would go. Others would stay behind with dad and they would watch the fireworks on their phone, on like FaceTime or Skype. Mom said that now she can go to the beach. She hasn't been in six years because they couldn't get dad there and she didn't want to go alone. Did I mention Liz, the server? She's 24. So, I don't know, Dave, you want to talk about spreading the wealth. There's a big difference when the government does it, when people do it themselves. She says, all I did was pay for their breakfast. And I didn't think anything would come out of it, except they would leave with a smile. That's some real giving, real charity, and real love. one 888 I hope Dave calls in. That'd be fun. But if he doesn't, want to talk about this book I'm reading right now. Absolutely love it. And in it, he tells the story of Dallas. Homeless man, drug addict. Horrible background. Turned his life around all by pushing a bucket. I mean, pushing a bucket. Tell the story next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, America's the greatest country in the world. Roger Stone, we got some breaking news right now. Uh, Roger Stone was Trump's campaign uh, advisor. Campaign? What do you? What do you? What do you? What's his title here? Yeah, top political advisor. Uh, quick. Quit the campaign, was upset with Donald Trump for uh, his comments about Megyn Kelly and everything else. So so that's something. So so Trump will implode some sometime. That will probably be the end of uh end of Trump. I'm not saying now, but there will be a there will be an end and it will be an implosion. Um let's go to well Dave didn't call in, which is a shame. But I don't know. Dave's not honest. And I, I don't really want to talk to Dave anyway. Because I wrote Dave. He said, uh, hey, we were talking about billionaires giving to Democrats and Republicans. And my point is that they give to both. It's not, it's not that, you know, only Democrats get billionaires. Um, and he, and I wrote, I sent a tweet about Tom Steyer. And he said, Tom Steyer gave equally to both parties in 2014. Um, so I wrote him back from Open Secrets. And 
Tom Steyer gave $74 million, 100% of it to Democrats. So I listen, man, I, I can't, this conversation's going to have to end here if you can't just be honest. So I have no interest in uh, Dave. But uh, I do have an interest in Joe in Utah who wants to chat about uh, something that Dave said, which we hear a lot, and it's always worth a good refresher on this. Um, when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, progressives use that as justification to um, uh, spread the wealth, redistribute the wealth. Joe, how are you today, sir? Excellent. How are you, Mike? Good. Thanks for calling in. So what would your response be to someone who uh, makes that comment? Well, it's not true. You're right. But let me give you the history. There's a lot of things in the Bible that need interpretation, as you well know. Well, in old Jerusalem, there were two gates. One was a large gate where all the traffic went through. And then there was this little door to the side that they called the eye of the needle. Okay? A camel would never get through and a five-foot human being had a hard time getting through it, okay? And why they named it the Eye of the Needle, I have no idea. But at least uh, mm-hmm. whoever said that you can't get to heaven if you're rich is ridiculous, because God loves everybody, everybody's got a chance. But as somebody said there on your radio program, if you're forcing somebody else to give away their money, well, then you're not a good guy. No, but that's you're going the truth about that little door. That little door was called the eye of the needle. That's it, Joe. Yeah. I appreciate no, Joe. I appreciate the call. That's uh, that's exactly right. But I mean, the, it's about going down one path versus the other path. And you, you, if you want to criticize someone because you think they're going down the wrong path because they have too much money, whatever that even means, to suggest that the government should take that person's money from them. That doesn't mean you're going down the right path <laughs> if you're suggesting such a thing. We are not here. This is the bottom line. Conservatives are not for redistributing money. We are for providing more opportunities so people can earn their own money. That is the key. So I'm reading a book right now by Arthur Brooks, uh, The Conservative Heart. It is fantastic. Please go buy it. It's great. And he tells the story of Dallas Davis. So Dallas uh, had an absent father. Mom was an alcoholic, no role models growing up. Dropped out of school in the seventh grade. Imagine a seventh grader dropping out. Joined a gang, left home at 15. Grew up and lived on the streets in New York City. In the wintertime, Dallas would stay in Grand Central Station to avoid the bitter cold. And one night, a man came up to him and tapped him on the shoulder. And offered him a sandwich. And Dallas said, what I saw in his eyes was not just kindness or compassion, but recognition. He recognized that I was a human being. All right, keep that in mind. We're going to get back to that. So Dallas went to jail for some drug charges. And when he got out, he saw a flyer for a program called Ready, Willing, and Able. And this was a place where men and women would learn to work and earn and stay clean and sober and enter back into society to create value for society. And Dallas was accepted to the program, which is an interesting thing to say, right? That's an interesting term because everywhere else that he was accepted because everywhere else that Dallas went, the leaders of the organization told Dallas what they could do for him. But this was the first place where he had to tell them what he was going to do for himself. 
And when you enter the program, Dave, are you listening, Dave, in L.A.? This is important. When you enter this program, your first job is to push the bucket. Push the bucket. You get a blue uniform and a broom and a bucket. And you clean the sidewalks of New York City. Now, to many people, this job is demeaning. Dave in L.A., I'm sure, would say that it's undignified to have someone clean sidewalks. It's offensive. Better just to give that person money so that they don't have to sink to the level of having to clean up other people's trash off the sidewalk. That's not how Dallas looked at it. He said, before long, I wasn't just picking trash off the streets. I was picking up values, morals, and principles. I was picking up self-esteem. And then when I would look back on that block that I just cleaned and see what a great job I'd done, I realized that I had picked up pride. And over the next few months, Dallas became a familiar face to everyone walking around on his sidewalk. People would say, hey, Dallas, how are you today? And it would just warm his heart because here is this homeless man who just months prior and for most of his life was invisible, was never even recognized. People stepping over him. Now people are saying hello to him. I should say now that the man who gave Dallas that sandwich in Grand Central Station is the same man who runs the ready, willing, and able program that Dallas graduated from. And so also, people, Dallas would be around, he'd be cleaning up the streets. People would ask him for directions. And Dallas loved that because now Dallas was important. He brought value to people's lives. Months after sleeping on the street, he was now improving people's lives. There was one day, he'll never forget, big snowstorm in New York City. During a snowstorm, New York City kind of shuts down. Hard to get the roads clear there, right? So while most of the city is huddling in their home, Dallas... And his fellow men in blue were outside clearing the sidewalks. And he said, we were out there making paths for the elderly, for the children and for people to get to work. Here we were. People who had slept in garbage. In train stations and under bridges. Those who society once thought couldn't accomplish anything. We were the ones bringing the city back to life. When he got his first paycheck, he broke down in tears. He didn't even open the envelope yet. Broke down in tears because it wasn't the amount of money that was in there that mattered. That's not what brought him to tears. Just the fact that someone thought he was worth something. Now, when people would give him money on the side, when he was begging for money on the street, he didn't cry because he knew he didn't earn it. This was money he earned. Broke down in tears. There's another man who was in the program, same background, essentially. And Arthur was interviewing him, and and he he asked the man, he said, uh, are you happy? And the man reached into his coat pocket and pulled out an iPhone. Now, Arthur's thinking, well, here's this man, he's going to say, 
Uh, yeah, of course I'm happy. Look, I used to be homeless. And now I have a brand new iPhone. Of course I'm happy. Who couldn't be happy? I was, I was homeless. I had no money. Now I have an iPhone. It's great. That's not what he said. He reached into his pocket, pulled out his iPhone, started looking through his emails. And he got an email from his boss the other day. He works at an uh, exterminating company. He got an email from his boss. And the email said, uh, there's an emergency job. And we need you to go there right away. And the man takes, pulls up the email and shows it to Arthur and says, look, they needed someone desperately. And they called me. I've become a go-to guy for a company. I am needed. I have a purpose. Do you understand? These people need me. I've never had that. That amazing to that, that what what an amazing answer to that question. Are you happy? He says, "Look, I'm a go-to guy. Of course I'm happy. People need me." So a lot of conclusions can be made in a short time here, but big picture, welfare programs, the ones that Dave wants, I'm sure. That just give people money. They don't give people the opportunity to become needed, to become a go-to guy. And that is the only thing that increases a person's dignity. And if conservatives ever want to win this welfare battle, it's not about cutting welfare. It's about creating a system where welfare isn't needed. It's about creating a system where it's easier for people to work and earn and build character and build value. Because where there's character and value, as Arthur Brooks says, now you have an opportunity to lift up your soul. And at the end of the day, what's more important than that? And second point, people are not liabilities. The left views people as liabilities to be managed. Right? Let's take money from these rich people. Let's give it to these poor people. And we'll be able to manage them. We'll be able to help them. We'll be able to keep their, 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 uh, their head above water a little bit. These, are li- these people over here, these poor people, these are liabilities that we can manage. They're numbers. They're a welfare check. Let's increase the welfare check so we can manage them a little bit differently than we have been. But that's all they are. They're just liabilities. It's the strangest thing. Progressives make it seem like they care about people. But those people are just numbers on a spreadsheet. It's a welfare check. That's it. But conservatives believe that people are assets to be developed. They're resources. They're not numbers. They're real people. And we want to help these people reach their full potential. Conservatives should be winning the debate on serving the poor. Now, listen, I'm not saying that bleeding heart liberals don't care about the poor. That's not what I'm saying. You know, They just support policies that don't actually help the poor. Conservatives care about the poor and have policies that actually help the poor. And if I can make one last point, because we chatted earlier about the great paradox. You have conservatives who are all about building value, character, morals, uh, dignity. But we always couch our message in material stuff. Like, oh, we got to cut taxes. We got to cut regulation. And progressives, they always talk about Oh, we got to care for people. We got to love people. We got to blah, 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 blah. All this like caring, loving stuff. But deep down, they're the materialists. They're the materialists. Here's Dave obsessed, obsessed with how much money these billionaires have and spend and keep and hoard. 
obsessed with money. Dave in LA is obsessed with thinking about money that other people have. And he thinks money is the solution to everyone's problem. That's why we have to take it and spread it around. And he thinks money is the reason why people don't even go to heaven because they have a lot of money. It's all about money for Dave and people like him. And conservatives need to say, listen, stop. It's not about the money. It's about the opportunity. It's about earning it. It's about your dignity. It's about your work ethic. It's about your character. It's about your values. It's about your morals. It's about your faith, your family, your community. That's who we are. We're not obsessed with it. It's not about money because as we talked about earlier, money doesn't buy happiness. It's not about money. But for progressives, it is. They think it's the answer to everything. Clearly, it's not. So let them have that. Fine, Dave, you want to be obsessed with money? Pfft, whatever. But we're better than that. We're bigger than that. We're more aspirational than that. That's the conservative message. It's a winning message. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater, Slater Radio on the Twitter. So in this book, uh, Arthur Brooks's main point, the conservative heart, is his advice is to fight not against things, but fight for people. Don't fight against things. That's what minority movements do fight for people that's what majority movements do we fight for people reagan was the master of this people always comment on how optimistic he was and he was but really he seems optimistic because what he was really doing was fighting for people give me an example 1980 gave a speech um at the republican national convention this is what he said he said work and family are at the center of our lives Notice he didn't say taxes and regulation, right? Work and family. Who can deny with it, deny any of this? Work and family are the center of our lives. The foundation of our dignity as a free people. When's the last time you heard a politician talk about dignity? When we deprive people of what they have earned, or we, when we take away their jobs, we destroy their dignity and undermine their families. We cannot support our families unless there are jobs. And we cannot have jobs unless people have both money to invest and the faith to invest in. That is probably the best argument for free markets I've ever heard. He didn't once mention tax rates. He kind of did, right? He said, uh, you know, when we deprive people of what they've earned, so that's high taxes. But he wasn't fighting against high taxes. He was fighting for people. By saying, listen, we gotta, we got to stop depriving people of what they've earned. That's so much better than saying, well, tax rates are too high. <laughs> Same thing in the end. But he was fighting for people when he was saying it. And it's beautiful. Why do we fight for free markets? Because we believe in the dignity of free people. Why do we fight for a smaller government? Because when we deprive people of what they earn or take away their job, we destroy their dignity and undermine families. What is more pure and undeniable than that? 
Who can who can deny that? Who what is Hillary Clinton? Even a Hillary Clinton supporter, you can go up to a Hillary Clinton supporter and say, "Listen, we just don't want to deprive people of what they've earned, and we don't we want to make sure they can uh, keep their jobs and have better jobs because when we deprive people and when we take away their jobs, we destroy their dignity and we undermine their families." Who can deny that? I'll end with this. He's, Reagan said, for those without skills, we'll find a way to help them get skills. For those without job opportunities, we will stimulate new opportunities, particularly in inner cities where they live. And for those who have abandoned hope, we will restore hope and will welcome them into a great nation, national crusade to make America great again. How about that? Not fighting against things, but fighting for people. Specifically, fighting for people without skills. Fighting for people without job opportunities and fighting for people who have abandoned hope. If we, as conservatives, can't be the people who are here for those without skills and those without opportunity and those without hope, what are we doing? What are we doing? That's who we need to be here for the most. Those without skills, opportunity, or hope so that we can help people have more skills, more opportunities, and more hope. And that's the problem here, because the left is, has this monopoly on compassion, this monopoly on helping people. And in the end, they, they, they don't help people. Because there is no dignity in a welfare check. And there is no hope in an unemployment line. We want people to have fewer welfare checks and more dignity. And we want people to have less unemployment checks, more hope. That's the conservative movement. Not fighting against things, but fighting for people. Oh, is that the Dave? The Dave's on the line? Ah, it's going to be good. Looking forward to talking to Dave here. Dave in L.A. Hope we have a good conversation. Good, honest conversation. We'll do it next. Mike Slater, show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network. the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater slater crusaders let's go right to dave in la right up the street from me right now dave how are you today sir i'm doing fine how are you good dave what's what's the deal man why the uh why the tweets back and forth here what's up uh well you were just mischaracterizing what i had said about um you know tax policy and your your characterization of the billionaires and what they're up to is just incorrect okay well so all right well fair enough so so all right well let's let's be more clear then let's put all the the tweets that we've sent in the past so where was i incorrect where would you like to correct me well what do you want to what do you want to talk about let's just talk about something you want to talk about the Koch brothers and where their money is actually going to versus where tom steyer's money is going to for instance, like one is for good and one is not for good. Okay, well, you can't, Dave, 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 Dave. So you can't just say that because you may think it's good, or I may think it's good, you may think it's bad, and vice versa. So you can't just make that blanket statement. 
Well, I'm using like basic, you know, economic principles over the last century to that backs up my. Uh, well, sure. The, no, but these are economic principles you think are true, and that I probably don't. So, uh, well, give me an example. Give me an example of where uh, the Koch brothers are using their money for bad. They're, they support um, the, uh, legislation. They craft legislation that uh, specifically benefits their business. They're not name, the name public. One. Give me one. Name one. Uh, that's a bold because that's like a bold a, claim. Like a specific, like a specific uh, uh, piece of legislation in, in a state. It's in many states. Sure. So you know, okay, good. So, so there's down a down on some. If you want to, whoa, try to Dave, down I'm not. I don't have. I don't well, Dave, have listen. I, right we got to be clear. We got to be clear. I'm not pinning you down. You made a claim, and I'm just asking for a piece of evidence to that claim. Look up what the Koch brothers support. Yes. Okay, but I'm not making the claim. Like you're the one making the claim. So you don't have to do it now. But just for future reference, if you're going to make a claim, it's wise to be able to back it up. So my, well, I don't know if you heard us earlier. Uh, chat about the Koch brothers. They had their big event in uh, Dana Point, right down the street from you. And uh, 450 Republican donors there, right? So $100,000 donation just to get in, right? So the b- richest business owners in the country. Do you know what he said at that dinner? Did you, did you read the articles about I heard. I already heard this. We don't need to rehash. Do you think 140 well, I, people deserve to dictate 300 million people? No, 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 that's a, no, no Dave, hold on. This for, every, for the sake of everyone else's conversation. He stood up there. And made an argument about how we need to stop bailing out the banks and how we need to stop with crony capitalism. And he said to all the business owners, he said, this will hurt you in the short run. Because if you're, if you're doing business with the government now and you're getting special favors, it'll hurt you in the short run. But in the long run, free markets are going to create a vibrant economy that will help your business and our whole country and everyone else's businesses too. Is that a – where do you disagree with that? Well, like I said – the banks and the industrialists, like the Koch brothers, are not friends. Of course, they want to shut down the banks because they 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 all want to be number one. Well, he doesn't want to shut down the banks. He just doesn't want to bail out for the bank. So, you so want, but you, do you disagree? Do you want bailouts for the banks? Do you want bailouts for the banks? Not. Okay, good. Of so you and the Koch not. brothers agree. That's fantastic. This is a good start. Wonderful. Dave, did you think? I do not want subsidies for the oil companies either. Oh, my gosh. Me either. Job. This well, is great. They're huge takers of this. You, again, Dave, just for future reference, if you're going to make an accusation like that, you have to be able to back it up. Give me an example. I, the, again, Dave, that's tough. It's tough to have a conversation if you can't support something you say. Come on, Mike. Dave, give me one example of something of an argument. Of what? One example of what? One be, one government benefit that the Koch brothers get. They get huge tax rebates for their oil and gas companies. That's how they made their money. They manipulated the government to give them even more breaks, which has led us to the road we're on today. I don't understand what break you're talking about. What's they, a, you think? So the Koch brothers specifically get what? Taxes. They get what? They've cut their taxes. Just for the Coke brothers, just for Coke industries. For the, for the no, for the richest people who all qualify, and it's in the tax code, Mike. They've, the rich people have manipulated the tax code, plain and simple. So, what do you think? What 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 tax rate do you think they pay? 
I know what they pay. What is it? Well, first of all, you don't because it's a private company. But what, like, what do you think they pay? Oh, so, so, so you're right. You're right. It is private. But according to everybody else has to pay certain percentages for certain incomes, right? Okay. Sure. So we all pay certain percentages. And you the don't think that you don't think the Koch brothers pay thirty percent of taxes just like everyone else? And on not on the highest end of their uh, of income, no. Really? You so your claim is that the Koch brothers don't pay thirty percent tax rate or whatever it is? No, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying they pay. Sure, they pay the same as you and I with their first five hundred thousand dollars, but they're done with that three seconds into the year. Where you and I keep paying off freaking year. So they don't Whereas, use... Well, that's not true. So you're saying that the first, let's say, $100,000 they make, they pay 30% taxes, and then the rest they don't? Everybody pays the same on that first 100000 Okay. So that just destroys the canard that, oh my God, they want them to pay 90%. No. They pay the same amount on the same tiers uh, as everyone else. And it graduates higher... As they make more and more, and they okay. only make more and more because workers make it possible. Workers make it possible. Uh, oh, all right, let's have that. Let's have. So the Cokes didn't make their money. Their factories will run without workers. Okay, so let, this is an interesting conversation. So we'll move away from the, that past conversation. So this is, this is fascinating. So this is just a philosophical debate between. Um, I mean, I don't want to. I don't. I don't mean to be a name caller here when I say this, but this is a that's a Marxist philosophy you have, right? Or is that data. accurate? So now you're going to start painting me with you don't even know what Marxism is. Okay, but so let's let's continue this conversation. So you think that it's that things happen because of the workers, and then my analysis would be more well, yes, workers obviously contribute. I can say workers don't do anything, but if it weren't for the Koch brothers, there would be no work to do. Oh, really? Supply and demand doesn't make any doesn't come into effect. If there's sure, demand, but, but it requires supply. Yeah, but it requires yeah, someone to organize that. Yes, small businesses historically have filled those niches. Yeah, but you can't have a small business be an oil company. You know what I mean? I mean, there's things that require a lot of capital and things that require massive organizations in order to happen. No, that's not true. They survived when Standard Oil was split into well, that was, hundreds that was, little companies. Well, that was just in the beginning of the business, and it, it wasn't efficient, and it, and it was gas, oil was super expensive then. That's why Standard Oil was able to grow, because they were able to standardize, right? Standard oil, that's the point, standardize oil across the country and make it more affordable for everyone else. That's the whole point of Standard Oil. That's why they were successful. But this is an interesting philosophy about, about workers versus employees. So, like, I'm a worker, right? But I work for Glenn Beck. So if it wasn't for Glenn Beck, I would not have a radio show here. And if it wasn't for any of us, he wouldn't either. What do you mean, any of us? So, so how, it, 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 again, it boils down to if there's nobody to consume, you ain't having no radio show. Either is Glenn Beck. He can talk till he's blue in the face, but if nobody's listening, he's just talking to himself. So this is my, this, we is, are the, this is the, yes, it's, this is the common ground. So you came at it from the workers are more important. My compromise is everyone's important. Yes. So then why are the 1% dictating all policy? If we, I don't know what that means. Like, again, important. I don't know what that means. Dictate, because you vote. Don't you vote, Dave? So, I mean, you're, you can dictate. Washington, yes. 
but there have been multiple studies that show that uh, the, the, the citizens' requests fall on deaf ears while the Koch brothers have a bullhorn and get what they want. Okay, so who, so who do you think? So who do you think? How do we solve that then? We bring the tax rates back to the way they were uh, after uh, when the New Deal was passed. So what, what would solve it? What's the, the magic greatest, number? The, the New Deal had a progressive tax rate that allowed Americans to become the greatest middle class ever. Okay, so what because is that tax rate? The money What's the tax rate? Because the money wasn't pooling in the Koch brothers' money vault, getting okay. dusty. It was out in the being spread amongst everybody, and everybody was doing good. Now right, lots of, so I got a couple questions. Two questions here. First, sure. what is that tax rate that you want? There's Lay a flat tax rate. Give me the number. Making, no, no. Give me the top, the top progressive tax rate that you want the Koch brothers to pay. What is it? Give tier, me a number. The top tier. Sure, the top tier. The top tier should be upwards of ninety percent, like it used okay. to be. Just want to put you on the record. Successful. Now, but let's let's be clear. Also, that for most of American history, there was no tax rate, zero for everyone. But we'll record, just throw that aside. Record, so, so here's my question because you mentioned there, there, we only got limited time. Question was, uh, or you said something like, uh, "Well, we got the money in the Koch brothers' money vault," and you said something before on Twitter about hoarding money. What do you think? So the Koch brothers, let's say they have, let's just say a billion dollars. What do you think? What do you think is that that money's doing? Where is it? It's it invested. It's sitting. It's it's making. It's a lot of. What does sitting doing mean? What does sitting mean? Sitting in mean sitting in a, an account somewhere. Doing what? Probably making interest. I don't know. I'm not a billionaire. Yeah. I don't have that much <laughs> money to worry about. Have you have you ever don't have you ever um, taken a loan out before? Of course. Yeah, that's where that money comes from. No, it does not come from them. Of course it does. <laughs> of course the it does. The Federal Reserve prints the money. No, no. The Federal Reserve is guaranteeing our my loan, not the Koch brothers. Where do you, no, not I'm not saying the Koch brothers specific. All right, let me let's let's make it more more simple. Koch brothers put a billion dollars into a bank where it sits. That bank takes the billion dollars and loans it out to other people so that they can start businesses and buy cars and buy houses and all the other things. Money doesn't just sit there. That doesn't make sense. That's not what the Koch brothers do. That's what bankers do. No, yeah, but the Koch brothers have the billion dollars that they put in the bank, right? And that's the problem. It's it's hoarded. They don't. No, but it's not. You're not listening. You're not listening. It's not hoarded. It's in a bank that the bank then loans out to other people to do other things. Not accessible to us. What? You're kidding if you think it's accessible to you and I. What are you talking about? I have a mortgage and I also lease my car, so that's incredible. From a bank. Yeah, but where's the you bank get their money? Interest? Where's the bank get the money? The, the Fed and other do you have, Yeah, but who... who <laughs> do, do you put money in the bank? Depositors. Yeah, who's a depositor? Are the, Koch, the Koch brothers are depositors. Not in my bank. Oh, my gosh. Okay, but some rich person puts their money that they've earned and created or whatever or stole. They put it in the bank, your bank. That then your bank loans to you so that you can get a mortgage. Earned sixty billion dollars. You think he actually has earned that? We're not. We're not. No, that's a different conversation. We only have a minute left here, but I want to focus on this one point. So, someone, some person, or a, a bunch of let's forget about um, rich people. A bunch of people put a little bit of money in banks. Your bank. 
that then your bank turns around and loans to you. Do you agree with that order of operations? Sure. Okay. Yeah, so the Koch brothers also do that and other rich people. So the money doesn't just sit there. This is what I just want to admit before we leave today. I don't want you to admit that money doesn't just sit unless it's in their freezer. If it's in their freezer, then it sits. What's that? What is all there? There's trillion dollars sitting out overseas. Uh, okay, let's focus on the money here. Let's focus on the money here. Let's focus on the money here. No, no, no. You said money doesn't sit. It does sit. Well, even over, even in other countries, it still does the same thing. Money doesn't just sit. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't sit. It's used for things, even when it's in a bank. Okay, you want to like break the minutia down of the. No, the this is important. This is important. No, this is important. Jesus. This is important because you say things like they're hoarding money. You say things like they're sitting on their money as if, therefore, no one else can get it. I want to prove the point that there's no such thing as sitting on money or hoarding money. It's in a bank or doing many other things and moving around so that other people do have access to it if, you know, you loan but if you ever loan get money out of a bank well i don't know i, know you I don't, don't know about you but i'd rather have that money to me without having to pay them interest on it i'd rather have them pay it to me in wages for the the money that i've created for their company then that's great you should work for them and create value so then they no, will pay you want to because they okay good then, then you know what then you know what dave start your own natural gas company deal Obviously not. I'm not going to be. There's no Joseph Stalin for me to go get in bed with, like their dad did. <laughs> we got to run. We really got to hit the break. And it goes back to my favorite argument too. If Nancy Pelosi and all the rest want to complain about uh, rich oil companies profiting too much money, go start your own and make it a non-for-profit. All right. Well, we tried. I don't know what your assessment is. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, goodness gracious. Look, Dave said, uh, he said, thanks for taking my call. That was the first time I've called a radio show. I appreciate the banter. I do too as well, Dave. I wish we could chat longer. I wish we could um, have a conversation not on the radio uh, over, over a cup of joe. Because um, I'd love to know, and, I, and I find this fascinating with people, and I really wish we had more time or we could even do that again. Um, why do you think this way? Like, where is this coming from? Because it's not... We could talk about the economics of these things, of free markets and Marxism and socialism and all the rest, but there's more emotional arguments that I want to learn more about and discuss and figure out. And that's the way that I think we can have a lot more common ground uh, than most people even think is possible. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Networks. We'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.